Chapter 68 The Pen Al-Qalam In the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful. Noon By the pen and what they record. This chapter was revealed in Mecca during the third year of the Prophet's mission. According to the exegetes, he was commissioned to proclaim and invite all Meccans to Islam during this period. Upon hearing his invitation to Islam, most Meccans burst into laughter, ridiculed him, and dispersed. Afterward, people began slandering him, claiming that he was a poet, a magician, and a sorcerer. But they mainly called him a majnoon, a crazy person, the worst possible personal attack because it denotes one who is insane and possessed by jinn, and he is delirious. People usually swear oaths when they are trying to convince others to change their minds about a subject. However, God does so to alert us of an important matter that we are inattentive to or heedless of. The opening letter, Noon, is one of the mysterious letters, only appears here in the Quran. Since ink was extracted from a species of whale known as Noon, we may conclude that Noon refers to ink. As the Meccans claimed that the Prophet was insane, an oath is sworn to ink, the pen, the book, and, in general, to that which is and will be written to refute them. This oath was asserted in the context of an overwhelmingly illiterate society in which such items were extremely rare. This clearly shows that the message of these verses and of the Quran as a whole was not limited to the people of that era. In other words, after the Quran's revelation, a time when literacy would spread, people would come to realize that the Prophet was, in fact, the exact opposite of a madman, namely, the wisest and most exalted of people. You are not, by your Lord's grace, a madman. The first revealed verse to the Prophet summons him to read. Reading, in tandem with knowledge and pen, inaugurated the connection between God and the Prophet in an illiterate society that did not value formal education. Contrary to the opportunists, who might swear oaths by mentioning matters that attract people's attention, these words were beyond people's everyday concerns. Surely you will have a never-ending reward. The Prophet is assured that he is not a madman. Rather, he has been blessed by revelation, its derived insights, and the immense and never-ending reward he will earn for his ongoing suffering. Here, God is boosting his morale and uplifting his spirit so that he can counter the ensuing rejection and accusations. Not only are you not a madman, rather, indeed, 
you have an exalted character. God proclaims that the Prophet possesses a high moral character. The noun here refers to one's disposition and temperament. The Quran similarly states, Part of God's mercy is that you deal gently with them. If you were to be severe or hard-hearted, surely they would have dispersed from around you. Chapter 3, verse 159 The Prophet tolerated rude remarks and never interrupted others. For I, Prophet, have been sent to perfect the noble character traits. And believers who have noble character traits are elevated to the lofty position of the ones who perform prayers in the dead of night and fast during the day. Soon you will see, and they also will see, which of you is really afflicted with madness. Time will tell whether you or they are on the right path. Indeed, your Lord is he who knows best who strays from his path, and he knows best who are the rightly guided ones. The inclusion of he indicates emphatically that he himself knows. Therefore, the verse is stating that God knows better. It is not that he lacks the knowledge, but that he knows and yet gives people freedom because that is his will. What then should the Prophet do when confronted with those who deny the message? So do not obey the deniers of truth. This and the following verse instruct the Prophet to leave such people alone, as opposed to commanding him to force them to surrender to him, or to prevent them from spreading their message by any means. The following verses use ten adjectives to describe these rejectors' characteristics, contrasts to prophets' noble character traits. They wish you would compromise, and then they would compromise. The deniers tried to bargain with the prophet. You leave our idols alone, and we will reconcile with you. But compromise is a good approach only when non-essential issues are at stake. People of integrity will not sacrifice core principles just to make peace, whereas self-centered people are willing to waver in their convictions and easily compromise because their principles have no firm foundations. Nor should you obey any contemptible, casual oath-taker. Here, the verse denotes those who idly assert oaths just to gain an advantage over others. Principled people believe in what they say and understand that swearing an oath is unnecessary. One characteristic of corrupt people is their frequent assertions of oaths in order to convince others to believe them. Such people are despicable possess vile characters, and have neither self-respect nor self-pride. A backbiter who spreads gossip. This particular social disease 
causes people to enjoy uncovering faults in and gossiping about others, in the mistaken belief that they can elevate their own status thereby. Here, an intensive form noun refers to those who are so devoted to pointing out others' faults that they cannot perceive their own. This verse portrays such people as farmers energetically scattering seeds around. Today, such a function is performed by various mass media outlets on a scale that dwarfs these earlier efforts. Hinderer of the good, a transgressing sinner. The epithet hinderer of the good is ascribed to people who both refrain from and do their best to prevent others from doing virtuous deeds. And transgressing sinner refers to those who offer no help to others and, in fact, violate their rights. Although exegetes generally translate as sinner, however, ithem specifically connotes a sin rooted in selfishness and egotism. Self-centered, narcissistic people focus only on themselves and thus violate other people's rights and help no one. Exceedingly coarse and on top of that, ignoble. Some exegetes opine that عطل designates individuals who habitually seek to satisfy their base desires. Others believe it refers to coarse, cruel, and ignoble people. Zanim, literally meaning the hanging part of a sheep's ear, figuratively describes a person who is a leech on society, someone without principles who is ignoble and devoid of roots. These verses seek to juxtapose the Prophet's noble personality with the character of his deniers, thereby revealing that the latter are his exact opposites. Just because he has wealth and sons. These base characteristics spring from their reliance upon their wealth and sons. Pre-Islamic Mecca's patriarchal society viewed daughters as burdens and sons as indispensable, not out of actual love, but rather for their ability to fight, defend, and earn a living. This specific attitude was the byproduct of the value placed on the pursuit of wealth and power. When our revelations are recited to him, he says, mere tales of the ancients. Whenever they hear the revelations, they claim they are fables and legends of the ancestors. People have always claimed that such words are ancient myths that smell of antiquity. We will soon brand him on the nose. In this particular idiom, khurtum, signifies that menacing people will eventually be defeated. Khurtum, which connotes both arrogance and conceit, is a symbol for an egotistical person and a bully. More contemporary examples of God's action against such people are Adolf Hitler. God branded them 
on the Khurtum and left them to be remembered in history in infamy as a reminder of their arrogance and egotism. The next passage presents a very instructive story. Indeed, we tried them as we tried the companions of the orchard when they swore an oath that they would harvest its fruit in the morning. The companions of the orchard refers to a group of orchard owners. Companionship with a thing implies attachment to or dependence on it. Here, the verse stresses on their certainty that they would harvest and gather up the fruit in the morning. They swore emphatically that they would do so, but why did they feel the need to swear? but made no allowance for the will of God. As the story unfolds, it becomes clear that this incident has a deeper meaning than their omission of God willing before their assertion that we will leave in the morning to harvest the fruits. In reality, they were acting as if they were in total control of the world's affairs. So, there came upon it a calamity from your Lord while they were asleep. The exact nature of the disaster, a sudden severe storm, lightning, fire, or a flood, is unimportant, for the message here is that they, as well as us, were not in control of events. As this catastrophe occurred while they were sleeping, their lack of awareness of what was happening is a metaphor that reinforces the point that only the omniscient and omnipotent God is in control of everything. In the morning, it was as if stripped bare. At daybreak, they called out to one another, saying, Go early to your crops if you intend to harvest. They called out to each other, saying, if you are determined to harvest the fruit, let's get up early and go before it's too late. So they set out while whispering to one another. Why were they whispering, you may ask? By no means let any poor person enter the orchard today. According to this verse, these owners' self-centeredness caused them to swear to leave early so they would not have to share their produce with any poor people they might meet on the way. They wanted to keep the entire harvest for themselves. Some people suffer from this exclusionary attitude, being so self-centered and unwilling to benefit others that they will ignore even orphans and the most deprived. So they went forth early, totally determined in their purpose. That is how they began their mourning. But when they saw it, they said, Surely we have lost our way. When they saw the orchard, it looked so different that they thought they were lost. And further, we have been deprived. The best among them said, didn't I ask you, why do you not glorify God? One of the more enlightened owners recognized that God's will for them 
to engage in virtuous deeds and help others was the exact opposite of their own. They had spent everything on themselves and were unconcerned with their community's plight. It was not just that they failed to say the right words before setting out for the orchard. Rather, they failed to have the right intention, namely, their obligation to share their prosperity with those who were less fortunate. By portraying this individual as asking the others, the Quran is characterizing their behavior as a failure to engage in glorifying God. They said, Glory to our Lord. Indeed, we have been unjust. These owners acknowledged that they had been unjust because selfishness has no part in God's larger plan. Those who refuse to use their hard-earned wealth to help others should realize that most of what they own is derived, both directly and indirectly, from many other people's efforts and contributions, or from the natural resources provided by God. It is clear that selfishly consuming all of our wealth and denying others' rights is injustice. Then they turned on each other in mutual reproach. Under such circumstances, people often blame each other instead of looking for a practical solution. They said, Oh, woe to us! Indeed, we have been transgressors. Those who seek to monopolize anything transgress the limits set by God because their ultimate goal is to acquire great wealth and power while ignoring the underprivileged. Similar to a raging river that overflows its bank, the usual outcome of such a quest is tyranny and oppression. Perhaps our Lord will replace it with something better. Indeed, we turn to our Lord, desirous of His grace. Their changed attitude shows that they had learned the intended lesson and hoped that because they had now turned toward God, He would replace their loss with something even better. Such is the punishment. The punishment of the hereafter is greater, if they only knew. The Quran reveals that punishment is the consequence of our own deeds. However, such actions are attributed to him because he is the one who devised the laws that govern the universe. In the Quran, God proclaims that our own deeds cause our punishment because, in short, we reap what we sow. The Quranic verses regarding heaven and hell are symbolic. Although presented in readily comprehensible language and at a level that most people can understand, they are not meant to be taken literally. People will discover, like these orchard owners, that their efforts were in vain and that the ensuing regret is only a foretaste of what is waiting for them in the hereafter. Surely for those who are God-conscious, there are gardens of bliss from their Lord. The emphatic particle inna underlines that this is certain. Are we, then, 
to treat Muslims the same as sinners. Muslims in this verse literally means those who surrender or submit, not necessarily those who profess Islam. The previous verse refers to the benevolent group as God-conscious, whereas this one calls them Muslimin, denoting that they have surrendered to God's laws. Mujrim, sinner, literal meaning, on the other hand, is to cut off. On this basis, it is applied to sinners because they have severed their relationship with God and the laws and order ordained by Him governing this world. Therefore, people who honor God's laws and help others while refusing to commit injustice cannot be treated in the same manner as those who violate His laws and commit theft, betrayal, dishonesty, lying, deception, and other sins. What is the matter with you? On what basis do you judge? What kind of judgment is it that you feel you are entitled to live as you wish with no consequences? Why do you not know the laws? Is it that you have some scripture in which you learn? Does scripture tell you that you are in charge? That you will be granted whatever you choose? and you are free to do as you wish without any regard for the consequences that might ensue? Or is it rather that you have some agreement from us, binding until the day of resurrection, that you will be granted whatever you decide? Do you think that you can choose whatever lifestyle you desire? Ask them, O Prophet, which of them will guarantee that? On what do you base such reasoning? Given that our deeds determine our fate, how can one say that they will have no consequences? These issues are as relevant today as they were in the past. Or do they have partners? Then let them bring their partners if they are truthful. Three scenarios are presented here. People either rely on a source such as Scripture imagine that they have some agreement with God, or are certain that others will intercede on their behalf and vouch for them. Therefore, one may conclude from these questions that the Muslimun and the Mujrimun will experience different faiths. The discussion now turns to the hereafter. The day when the shin is uncovered and they are summoned to prostrate themselves in worship, but cannot. The idiom, a shin is uncovered, refers to coming of the day of judgment. However, other exegetes opine that it refers to the secrets that will be revealed on that day. What does they are summoned to prostrate themselves in worship but cannot convey? Prostrating implies being of service to a specific thing or person. When God commanded the angels to prostrate to Adam, God was ordering them to serve Adam. So, the phrase implies that on that day, humanity will be asked to serve God's dominion. However, people will be unable to do so because the appropriate time for this, namely, 
their earthly life has already passed. With their eyes downcast and humiliation will cover them, for they were summoned to prostrate when they were sound in this world. Islam's ritual prayer includes prostration and bowing from the waist, while those of other religions generally do not. These verses address all humanity, not just Muslims, for all people are ordered to engage in virtuous deeds, serve their community, and do what is right while they can. As long as they are alive, people have the opportunity to repent and earn salvation. What is the Prophet's responsibility regarding those who ignore such advice? So leave me to deal with those who reject this revelation. We will lead them away to punishment by stages in ways they cannot comprehend. The Prophet is instructed to leave alone those who reject the Quran, to neither fight nor suppress them, for God will deal with them according to His established laws and norms. To lead by stages in this verse denotes that our fates are the result of our own cumulative actions. The many seemingly small actions that we take each day as we move through life. Similarly, the unbelievers described here will be led to punishment gradually through their entire life in ways they cannot comprehend. But I will grant them respite for a time. Indeed, my plan is firm. God has granted all people freedom and a period during which they can act as they wish. For my plan is firm. Weak people desire to punish the guilty because, not having the same authority as God, they fear that the perpetrator may run away. But as no place is beyond God's dominion and we are all part of His orderly system from which we can never escape, nothing is forgotten or overlooked, and we will inevitably have to face the consequences of our actions. Therefore, here, the Quran is discussing the freedom that God has granted so that each person will ultimately face his or her own fate. Or do you ask them for compensation, so that they would be burdened with debt? All prophets have spread God's message among their people without expecting anything in return. So why do these people feel so burdened, O prophet, although you have not asked for anything in return? Or do they have knowledge of the unseen, so that they might write it down? Do they have access to the unseen world, and thus know that their chosen lifestyle will have no consequences? This line of questioning asks why they have chosen such a lifestyle. The Prophet's only option is to be patient. Be patient with the judgment of your Lord, and do not be like the companion of the whale who called out in distress. Sahibul Hut means the companion of the whale, referring to Prophet Jonah 
who was strongly associated with the whale because of its connection to his fate. Here, in this verse, he is criticized as the one who called out in distress, so that any mention of his name in this context would leave a negative impression on the reader's mind. It is true that his people had ignored his message for years, despite his warnings of the signs of the coming punishment. So, in a fit of anger, Jonah abandoned them. The Quran instructs us that prophets or teachers are not permitted to follow such a course of action. Interestingly, after he left in despair, his people rejected unbelief, and for this reason, this verse instructs the prophet not to follow his predecessor's example. If his Lord's blessing had not reached him, surely he would have been thrown onto the barren shore, despised. God saved Jonah because of his faith and sincerity and his past work. But his Lord chose him and made him one of the righteous. This historical experiment is a lesson to the prophet. Be patient with your people's accusations instead of becoming angry and abandoning them. And those who disbelieve almost strike you down with their gaze when they hear the reminder saying, Indeed, he is possessed. Whenever they heard the Quran being recited, here, called the reminder, they claimed that the Prophet was clearly Majnoon. The Meccan's enmity was so intense that just hearing him recite its verses made them wish that they could kill him just by looking at him. It is nothing but a reminder to the worlds. This scripture, the Quran, is only a reminder to the world meant to raise the awareness of all of humanity, not just of the Arabs or Muslims, and awaken people from the sleep of ignorance.